Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Have you ever stopped to consider how a cocktail might become a classic, reaching iconic status among bartenders and drinkers? Said drink would, of course, have to taste pretty good, and a memorable name sure helps. Best case scenario, that drink might also capture the cultural zeitgeist of the moment. But I think we can throw two additional M's into this formula, those being mystery and marketing, because both of those factors have certainly aided the fortunes of the zombie, a drink that's among the most revered in the canon of tiki cocktails. In keeping with that theme of mystery, I'm not going to reveal any more about how those apply to the zombie. I'll save that for the episode and today's guest. I will, though, spend a few moments talking about that guest, Shannon Mustafer. Shannon is an award-winning cocktail consultant, spirits educator, and the author of Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails. Shannon opened the Rum Focus Gladys Caribbean Bar back in 2014 and later founded the Women Who Tiki cocktail pop-up. She's also, of course, an expert on the zombie cocktail. Get the cranberries queued up in your playlist for later, listener, because after today's cocktail college, the zombie will very much be in your head. Hopefully your glass. We are in the Vine Pear studio today with Shannon Mustafer, and can I say that is a Wonderful pleasure to be here with you, Shannon. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Tim, thanks for having me. You know, I'm a big fan of the Vine Pair crew, so it's great to be here with you and chatting about one of my favorite drinks. Cannot wait to get into it. Um, I was telling you before we started as well, this is this is a slightly nervous one for me just because I feel like this is this iconic drink within the the kind of tiki and tropical sphere. It's a drink that I love ordering. I've never made it home. I don't have the ingredients, but I feel like after our conversation today, I'm going to be out there probably buying like 10 bottles and going home and experimenting. So let's get into it. Well, I mean, all I got to say is first to put you at ease. I mean, this is tiki we're talking about. So it's meant to be fun and light. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think it's a good time to be making zombies because contrasted three or four years ago, even six years ago when I opened up Gladys Caribbean, it wasn't easy to find the rums that would really work in this cocktail. And now there are many options which you're going to unpack. Mm-hmm. So that being said, when you're all said and done, I do expect you to go home, make that uh, zombie and report back. I, I absolutely will. If it's if it's good enough, I might even take a photo and tag you on Instagram or I whatever. And <laughs> I'll be looking for it. And so if you don't see that on my feed, anyone, uh, you'll know that it was a complete disaster. But I'm sure that will be completely the fault of my own. Well, look, I'm here for guidance, advice, and support, so don't (laughs) hesitate. So there's a lot to unpack in a good way about the zombie. There's a ton of history to get into. Before we do, though, can you just tell me, like, what makes this a notable drink? Like, what makes this such an iconic drink? Yeah, so I contend, and this is just based on, you know, my research of Donna Beachcomber's early um, restaurant in the, you know, Los Angeles in the late 30s, um, you know, via, 
you know, reading Potions of the Caribbean and other Down the Beachcomber um, biographies that I think this is a drink that really put his restaurant on the map to the degree that it would inspire imitators who also were, you know, doing copycat tropical and exotic bars, but they realized that the zombie has something special to it. And so, you know, within the course of a year, almost any copycat bar had a zombie on its menu. Now, um, were these the authentic recipe? Probably not. But there was so much buzz and kind of good marketing around it that I think that it was one of the drinks that really legitimized tropical and exotic cocktails and later mm-hmm. what we call tiki. I, I just don't know, you know, how popular the genre would have become without this particular cocktail being in the mix. That's incredible. And, you know, regardless of whether that's tiki or not or any other style of cocktail, just that that insane popularity almost from the get-go and just spreading around like even today with things like the internet and social media like that that doesn't happen very often right like that a drink will take off like that no and you know i think that there's a couple reasons why it did mm-hmm. a it's a fantastic drink and we'll get into the nuts and bolts of why that is but b you have to remember that don the beachcomber um who started off as an adventurer before opening bars. Like he grew up in New Orleans. Um, It's rumored that his relatives or one of his uncles in particular was involved in rum running. So there's a good chance that he was involved in some of the rum running going on during Prohibition. In addition to visiting the Caribbean, you know, as a teenager, um, he chose to take the money that his parents offered him to either go study at college or to travel the world. And he said, screw college. (laughs) I I like beaches and I like islands. So he spent some time in the Caribbean, later spent some time in the South Pacific, loved it to pieces. And that's where, you know, his um, fascination for South Seas culture and Polynesia began. And this began to kind of like give him that vision that would eventually, um, come to fruition in his bar programs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to note that in Polynesia, there are no such thing as tiki drinks. You know, there is a, a culture of using juices to make mixed beverages, but you know, cocktails didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So Don's innovation generally and overall was to take Caribbean rums and then, you know, Polynesian uh, decor and vibe and then kind of put them together in this cultural fantasy that was his bar, Don the Beachcomber. Mm-hmm. And so there we're, we're really getting into the, the early history of the drink here in the foundation. So I'd love to hear more about that. And are there any tales or is there one kind of generally accepted tale of how the zombie came about? Don, of course, being the, the creator of this drink. How does that come about? And then how does that uh, the, the popularity spread, like you, you mentioned before. Well, I mean, here's the thing about Don. You know, he's an entertainer. You mm-hmm. know, he opened his bar when um, Hollywood was emerging as a scene. In fact, his restaurant was very popular among the Hollywood set, um, probably in part because he did work as a consultant on South Seas films and would lend props and probably got a lot of his props from that work. So, I mean, do we believe the story behind it or do we just accept it as, you know, another bit of entertainment and fanfare? Mm -hmm. But um, one anecdote says that he had a regular that came in 
with a hangover one evening and uh, the gentleman was asking for something that would kind of perk him up. <laughs> and uh, sometimes, for better or worse, if you're in a bad state, you kind of need something a right. little extra to, to bring you back. The and hair so, of the dog. <laughs> you know, this is very hairy dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he made the drink for this guest and the guy, you know, felt better, so to speak, but then came back the next day and he was like, I feel like I died and came back. <laughs> so <laughs> that that kind of inspired this idea of the zombie as something that kind of will put you under and then bring you back ready for more. But I, I think the the brilliant touch, apart from the recipe itself, was the disclaimer that he put on the menu. Mm-hmm. Only two allowed per customer. Right. Now, I've never tried to have more than two, so I don't know if he put that there as a real safety measure, mm-hmm. the cynical part of me thinks that it was a bit of a marketing ploy because yeah. when you limit supply, people are like, I want more, I yep. want more. I mean, <laughs> there are even people that would go so far as to kind of like pay somebody to go get them another <laughs> one. You know, so it really worked because people were like, I can only have two. Yeah. It must be really good. And how many people more. want three from that as well? Just like you say, like just to be like, yeah, I've had, I've I had, had more. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it's a it's a wonderful piece of marketing. And, you know, even if that wasn't the intention, the it definitely did have that effect, I'm sure. I mean, I don't think it was an accident. Mm-hmm. No. And it's there's other drinks out there, too. Like you said, like you maybe haven't tried to have two. And people say that about a martini as well. Right. Like you shouldn't have more than two. I've occasionally done more than two. But I'll tell you, like. Two is definitely the the good place to stop. And even if you're moving on to other cocktails, like that's a good place to stop. I don't think I've ever enjoyed my third martini really that much and certainly not the next day. I mean, if you're on martini number three, you might as well just be pulling a chilled bottle of vodka from the freezer. (laughs) Like if that's what you want to do, let's just call it what it is. Yeah, let's let's be honest here. Um, And then I'd seen something too about maybe the year after or... subsequent years this drink was maybe also published or the recipe was published at the world's fair is that something of the story that you've come across as well or not you know i have to admit i haven't looked too deeply into that i'm Mm -hmm. a little more concerned with um how it showed up in tropical bars and what it did to spread the message but being at the world's fair certainly didn't hurt it and i think also from from my understanding or my research and again this is the history of drinks right you got to take everything with a pinch of salt but the person who apparently put the recipe on there also was not don and was trying to claim the drink as their own so it's good that we can forget that part because you know we don't want people taking credit for something they haven't done well i mean that's what i'm saying i'm not surprised that they put it on there but Mm -hmm. i mean i think they recognize that it did have a, a big marketability factor. Otherwise, why would they be bothered? And, um, I mean, I can't think of another American drink trend prior to the zombie that inspired that much press outside of, say, the mint julep, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I recall uh, a passage in the, um, the opening or the preface to The Ideal Bartender where there was mention of a libel suit because... Um, President Roosevelt claimed that he only had one sip of Tom Bullock's julep, and then somebody called BS on that. They're like, "No, no, no, no. Tom's, <laughs> Tom's juleps are so good. There's no way you can only have one sip." You know, and you know that drink did get a lot of press, as did the sherry cobbler. Yeah. But outside of that, you didn't really see the press, you know, spending a lot of time talking about any particular cocktail, mm-hmm. and they did with the, the zombie. Mm-hmm. And you spoke we 
mentioned the kind of great marketing genius, uh, intentional or otherwise, of, of the two-drink limit, is there another factor of this drink that adds to its notoriety, uh, notoriety which is the recipe? Is this a cocktail where the recipe has been known throughout time, Don comes up with it, people know it, people make it, or is this, this is a drink with some certain mysticism around it? Well, um, I, I think it certainly has mysticism because he was the first mixologist or, you know, bartender that would put two or more rums in one cocktail. But uh, when you look at the, the bones of the template, there is a precedent, I believe, found in the planner's punch, mm-hmm. which he likely encountered, you know, while visiting Jamaica, you know, be it um, as a guest at their Myrtle Bank Hotel or perhaps the um, Hotel Titchfield Um it wasn't uncommon for resorts at that time and at this time I'm talking about between, you know, 1910, 1930s to have a house punch, which was a play on the planners and they each had a different recipe. But when I look at the Myrtle Bank Hotel rendition, um, it's not a stretch to say that he saw that and kind of built upon it and made this, a, I would say, a more extravagant or Baroque example or bespoke example that was unique to him. It was also something that couldn't be imitated because he never, um, you know, made the rums that went into his blends explicit. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes the bartenders would touch one bottle and it would say zombie blend. I'm just, you know, using the example. They didn't know what the rum components were. Like that came to light later on um, through Jeff Beach from Barry's um, research. So um, on one hand, it's based on a simple idea, but he kind of took it to the max. Mm -hmm. And then had those kind of those proprietary ingredients or blends, like you say, that were not maybe or we had to discover over time. And that comes through the work of Jeff Beachbum Berry, as you mentioned. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So Jeff Beachbum, also from California, um, got his start working in Hollywood as a screenwriter and you know doing adjacent projects. So, you know, the apple didn't really fall far from the tree and in the late 70s, early 80s, kind of fell in with a crowd of uh, tiki and exotica enthusiasts in South California. They include uh, Sven Kirsten, who is a scholar who's written numerous books on the topic of um, tiki culture and art and artifacts and design. Um, Otto and uh, Baby Doe von Stranum, who founded the first, um, I would say, festivals around Tiki, which eventually became Tiki Oasis, Mm -hmm. which is held twice a year now in two locations. So, you know, they were spending a lot of time together and um, Jeff Beachbum um, became really fascinated with trying to find these classic recipes. You know, sometimes you would open up, um, I say like a Trader Vic cocktail book and, you know, sometimes you try to make them, but it didn't always add up. And he would go to different bars in LA that were still open and serving Tiki and he would ask, so what's in this drink? And I'll use like Tiki Tea as an example. You know, some of the bartenders working there, you know, had worked for um, Don or Vic prior, but they were all sworn to secrecy. That was the culture of Tiki bars. Everything was in code. And the only way to learn the recipe was to poach the bartender. And so Whoa. the answer he get was like rum and juice. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he, he was very... Um, persistent and meticulous in his research over the course of, I would say, 10 to 12 years to come up with grog log, 
Exotica and all these different books where he was just like slowly chipping away at getting some insight into what was going on in these cocktails. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. And really sort of adds to adds to the story there, right? Just these, I don't know. I I love that idea of maybe it's more the kind of like writer and journalist in me of like having to piece together different things and going to different people to, to bring everything together as one. And also we are, as a drinker and as drinkers and bartenders today, enjoying the fruits of that. Um, now knowing the, knowing and understanding the, the true ingredients, right, of, of Don's original recipe. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And also consider that, you know, when a lot of these um, original exotic or tropical cocktails were conceived, the selection of rums available in the U.S. market were very different compared to what you could find in most markets, let's say, in the 1980s, 1990s. And that had a lot to do with um, you know, relationships that the United States established with Puerto Rico and mm-hmm. BVI and subsidies that those islands were receiving and incentives to produce rum in a you know, kind of untaxed yeah. situation. And so um, retailers were more inclined to bring in those rums, but they only kind of constitute a sliver of you know, the arsenal of rums that you would need to be able to make tiki cocktails. So mm-hmm. I would say it's only in the last five to eight years that in most major U.S. markets, you can reliably find, you know, the high ester Jamaica rums, mm-hmm. the the Guyana rums without added sugar mm-hmm. um, and other elements that you can use to make, you know, drinks that are very close to the original recipes. Before that, I think people were kind of taking shots in the dark and maybe falling a little short. Mm-hmm. And I think that might attribute for, you know, why tiki cocktails became a little less popular because they just didn't taste that good. Because the ingredients weren't there. They weren't there, unfortunately. And we are going to dive into those ingredients very shortly. But before we do so, and I always ask our guests this, what are you looking for from perfectly executed version of this drink whether you're making it yourself or someone hands it what are you expecting from it yeah sure so i mean this is like the stereotypical answer regarding any cocktail i want to be balanced Mm -hmm. so i want to be able to discern the flavors and aromas of the rum like I, i want the rum to still shine but i don't want it to feel like it's an overly boozy or aggressive drink i mean that's a dangerous part because it doesn't come across that when right. it's made properly <laughs> what you're really getting more is like flavor as opposed to heat mm-hmm. um i want to, the citrus to not be you know so overwhelming i don't want it to be very sour but it still needs to be very bracing and crisp and there should be like a a subtle herbaceous element and that's going to come um courtesy of your uh pastis or absinthe or whichever you know element you decide to use um but yeah it just needs to be very punchy and bright mm-hmm. and something that you could easily down yeah and then you look down and, oh i need another one <laughs> time to slow down i love how you described it earlier as a very hairy dog and but also like the idea of the alcohol not coming through this we could maybe describe it as a well-groomed very hairy dog this one <laughs> that could very well be true mm-hmm um, so you've mentioned, you know, mentioned some of the ingredients there, but let's dive into those now and let's look, let's obviously, let's start with rum. Um, tell us about the rum or rum, rums, plural component of this drink and what you're looking for yourself when you approach making it. Yeah. So, you know, 
Before I get into the individual realms that are utilized here, I think it's important to preface that, you know, when Don was looking at rum components in his cocktails, I, I think he was um, kind of looking at the way um, some wine producers would blend different grapes. So he's looking at the flavor profiles and texture that each component will contribute to the end result. So, you know, don't think of it as like, oh, this guy just wanted to put a bunch of rum in the drink. Like the intention is not rum for rum's sake for this idea of like there's so much alcohol in it. Like that's not what he's after. What he's after is really kind of getting at the best aroma, the best mouthfeel, the best flavor, the best texture, the best finish. And, you know, there aren't that many rums that can supply that on their own. And so he had the foresight to think of it almost like a wine Mm -hmm. where you pick out, you know, the grape that has a really nice nose on it. And then, you know, there's like that kind of like soft mid palate component that kind of like carries everything and wraps it up. Mm -hmm. And then there's an element that maybe like um, gives you a, a gravelly finish or a fruity finish or a very dry finish or something like that. So that's kind of like the thought process behind what he put in here. Yeah. So with that being said, let's look at these individual rums that are, you know, traditionally called for. Yeah. Now, the Jamaican rum is um, carrying most of the drink. And um, it's important to consider that the Jamaican rums that he was likely sourcing at that time were probably predominantly pot still as opposed to column still. So for those of you who are a little less familiar, um, the major distinction that you'll find between these two approaches is a column still is the first method of distillation. It takes place in one chamber. And as a result, depending on how the liquid has been fermented prior, in the case of Jamaica, uh, traditionally it's a longer fermentation, which means that you have, um, I would say, a deeper, richer flavor profile that you can then kind of concentrate and kind of preserve in amber, so to speak. And that means um, floral notes, dried fruit to a degree, sometimes some some grassy notes, and then um, this signature funk or hogo that people love mm-hmm. about this classic style of Jamaica rum. So that's going to give a lot of aroma and a nose. Um, the second component is a 151 rum from Guyana. And um, that could be a combination of pot and column. I'm guessing that at his time, like where he was sourcing, it was probably mostly pot. Mm-hmm. But I have to admit, I haven't looked that far into it, but yeah. I, I tend to use the pot still rum from Guyana for this. And what you get in the case of this style of rum is that um, Demerar Valley is known for having very rich alluvial soils, and the sugarcane as a result kind of has like a muskier flavor element to it. And I love it because it, to me it's kind of like the Cote de Rona rum. It's kind of <laughs> fruity and peppery and has yeah. like kind of concentrated black currants, blueberries, things like that. So it's fruity but it's not sweet. And sometimes it can have like white pepper and just be kind of like really dry. Nice. Which I, I love. Or maybe it's more like a grenache. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> so so there's that. And I, I think that kind of gives it some heft as well. It is a higher proof. Um, and again, um, don't think of higher proof as like more alcohol. Think of it as more concentrated flavor. Because once you start to proof a liquid down, then you also lose flavor and aroma. So it's just like very intense flavor. Maybe it's helpful to think of it as like a glaze. Okay. <laughs> if you're, you yeah. know, if you, if you cook and you're familiar with the glaze, like yeah. it's kind of like the glaze in the blend. Mm-hmm. Or if you're taking your chicken stock and you're reducing it down and, you know, like a, like a, 
a demi-glace too, which obviously stems from the word glaze, like you're talking about there. But yeah. Exactly. Something like that. I hope, I hope that wrong people don't come for me for that. But <laughs> <laughs> I think, no. no, I think that's a wonderful, <laughs> I think that's a wonderful way of explaining it. Right on. Now, last but not least, um, the Puerto Rican rum. So, mm -hmm. you know, those tend to be written off by some as um, not having as much character as the Jamaica rum in regards to aroma, or maybe it doesn't have as much fruit mm -hmm. as a Demerara rum, but it doesn't have to because this is what kind of gives it a, a softer, rounder, mm -hmm. creamier edge. And it's important to note that Puerto Rican rums at that time, or he probably was using a Cuban rum, mm -hmm. let's face it, um, they could be vegetal and a little bit dry, depending on how they were aged. Um, I'm under the impression this is a, maybe something that wasn't aged as long. Yeah. And so I would expect to be like not a neutral base, like it, it had character and body, but it was meant to be more like a kind of, I would say, a vehicle, yeah. if you will. Merlot. Merlot, I think, is fair. Right? Even though, yeah, we're blending with Merlot. I was about yeah. to say, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. The, the kind of the approachable, rounded, but it carries everything else as well, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing about it in and of itself that you can be like, yes, I just want to sit here with this. Yeah. But I don't think that you would want to isolate any one of these components and just go with that either. Mm -hmm. Unless you just have a, you know, predilection. Mine is towards Jamaica rum. But I know it's not for everybody, and that's not the way... Jamaica rum was historically used. Historically, mm -hmm. it was incorporated into blends. Think of the British Navy or different yeah. merchant bottlers in Europe. Like they never just, I mean, not never, but it was uncommon to just sell right. Jamaica rum on its own. It was kind of like the salt and pepper right. in the, a lot of rum blends. The seasoning, yeah, wonderful. Um, it's funny because blending rums, um, especially for these style of cocktails, is something we've spoken about quite a bit before on the, on the show, but never really gone into it quite in that kind of direction and also that much depth. So thank you very much for that. Well, it's something I can't help. And I think it's something I'm surprised that we don't hear more about. But, you know, just for a little background uh, for those listening in, prior to opening the program at Gladys and starting to taste and learn about rum, I'd worked with wine. So I'd worked at a buyer, I'd worked in different restaurants and shops and wine bars. So when I was trying to kind of make sense of how to arrange the back bar and how to explain um, our selection to the guests, it was kind of like a natural idea to be like, oh, just arrange it by geography. And then as I learned more, I began to see, you know, maybe it was helpful to think of it, think of it as like different types of grapes or different mm -hmm. types of wines. Mm -hmm. And I love the, the, I really do love that, the kind of wine analogy that you use there, because I think increasingly these days, folks don't just stick to one lane, right? Like spirits, wine or beer or like spirits and cocktails, right? I think increasingly these days, people, people enjoy from all different categories. And I think the, the, the kind of the, the analogy that you used will help break that down and make it so much more approachable for a lot of people. It helped me. <laughs> <laughs> so... Second ingredient here of many, uh, where would you like to go? Well, let's talk about the Don's Mix. Yeah. Because I think that's where you can have a lot of fun, especially this time of year. So Don's Mix is a compound syrup. And by compound syrup, um, I'm talking about something that is not just an infused syrup. So an infused syrup would be like a mint syrup or a rosemary syrup. Um, when we talk about a compound, we're going to incorporate something that's outside of the sweet. So in this case, 
it's a great fruit juice, mm -hmm. but another compound syrup could be like a, a syrup that has um, butter incorporated into it, like gardenia mix. Mm -hmm. That's another topic. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, Don's Mick is really cool because cinnamon, if you source the right kind, can add a lot of bright aromatic mm -hmm. to the element. And then with the right type of grapefruit, I would suggest white grapefruit over ruby red personally. But, you know... I think there's room for all kinds of variation. Like if you can get your hands on palmello or, mm -hmm. you know, if you can get some Buddha's hand or some other types of citrus uh, to put in there, I say it's all fair game because nice. let's just bear in mind, like in the 1930s and 1940s, it's not like you could just source all these exotic fruits from all over the world. Right. But I'm sure that if Don and the other bar operators could have, they would have. Yeah. You know, so I, I kind of like to maintain an open stance, but White grapefruit is like the mm -hmm. threshold, but I encourage you to kind of go wild with it. <laughs> so, you know, um, think about that kind of, it's a little punchy, but it's not as acidic as lemon or mm -hmm. lime, but it also has more of that um, that floral aroma that those other citrus fruits don't offer. And that's the role it plays when you introduce the cinnamon. Nice. And so that's grapefruit juice and cinnamon syrup? Correct. So what you do is combine them and you can lightly... I would say simmer it. I wouldn't cook it. I wouldn't turn it up too high. Mm -hmm. But you do want to simmer it for about 10 to 15 minutes in order mm -hmm. to fully integrate it. Obviously, you want to strain out the pulp prior to adding the juice um, to your syrup. And, of course, if it's fresh, yeah, it's better than store-bought. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to from a kind of bar perspective or for folks making it at home, um, what's the kind of shelf life on something like that and... Does it very much um, depend on the bar program you run or if you have this on me on the menu, I guess, whether you this is something you have on hand or are there going to be bars out there that might have, for example, cinnamon simple syrup and fresh grapefruit and they can make this? What's the what's the thinking there for those two things? Yeah, so, OK, once you've combined it and made the syrup, the shelf life, you know, on paper is seven to ten days <laughs> but again like citrus always varies and so you know grapefruit that you bought last week who knows how long was at the store right right so i would just say like use it as, as quickly as you can mm -hmm. now in regards to don's mix i mean there are two reasons why he would make the compound syrup a it's more efficient on the pickup because yeah. it's a very fast selling drink and then b it kind of adds more mystery to the yeah. Um, recipe so it's like it's not cinnamon syrup and grapefruit no he had to obscure what it was yeah so it kind of like serve both purposes but yeah i mean you know there's some bars where they don't really have enough tiki going on to justify making a don's mix because yeah. it is very specific to this recipe and maybe a handful of other applications unless they've come up with another use for it and so yeah if you have grapefruit juice and you have cinnamon syrup like mm -hmm. go for it wonderful and what do you think the chances are if I were to go into, you know, um, I've heard it described before as a cocktailian setting, but like a very good cocktail bar that, but that's maybe not tiki or tropical focused. What are my chances that they will have, they will be able to make me a zombie if it's not on the menu? Do you think that's just case by case scenario? I mean, if it's a good bar. Yeah. They'll have a cinnamon syrup and yeah. I should hope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if it's a good bar. Yeah. Th then all these ingredients are at that bar. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, you know, what's the attitude of the bartender and, you know, how curious are they about how to help you if you ask for that, right? Because I think good bars 
have good service and if someone asks you for something that you don't typically serve instead of being like <laughs> you know you discreetly go to your pos mm-hmm. look up the recipe yeah. and then make it yeah you know what i'm saying so if someone if you went to you know a good bar high-end bar and you see like all the cheaters of serbs you see more than 10 rums behind the bar you see mm-hmm. the absinthe you see nice glassware you see pebbled ice yeah. even better there's a good chance they can do it for you but if you ask and you get an attitude then maybe that's not such a good bar it's not a good are. sign not a good sign not at all <laughs> you know what i'm saying like yeah i've run tiki events where someone came in with friends and she was like i would love a martini she's like i'm sorry to ask you i was like no i would love to make you a martini because that's what you want <laughs> yeah so let's do it and let's have fun with it everyone's going to be happier after that right like yeah. if, if they're getting what they want and you're making that for them wonderful who am i to tell you what to drink <laughs> you tell me so next ingredient where shall we head let's talk about grenadine grenadine okay because tell I me think all this, about it this is where it can go wrong the, this is okay. where it can go wrong i mean I know it's not easy to easy or justifiable to have grenadine in most bar programs because let's face it, there aren't that many drinks that call for it. I don't even right. I'm I'm trying to guess about the other drinks that call for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are two or three that are in a classic candidate. Again, it's something that I so seldom encounter, right? Yeah. And so you know, I think a lot of bars, unless they have a cocktail on a menu that's calling for it. They're not really going to be bothered with it. Right. Um, Unless they sell a lot. Is it Sex on the Beach that has a grenadine as well? Maybe. Yeah, but guess what? Like in the bars that serve that drink, (laughs) they're probably using like a pre-made cordial. Right. Yeah, they're not not going there. Which, by the way, people, roses is not grenadine. I don't know Mm -hmm. what it is, but it's not grenadine. So the, the definition of grenadine is a syrup that's derived from pomegranate juice reduced down with sugar. You know, that's like the quick and easy definition of it. Um, what I found uh, bars prefer to use if they're going to make a grenadine is maybe a juice like palm. Mm-hmm. I've also seen people adapt syrups that they would get from like a specialty store, let's say like a Kalushin's. Right. So, you know, different um, pomegranates that are, you know, coming from maybe um, a Middle Eastern or Indian palate. But I would say, again, test a few options there. But, you know, be aware that you might want to... Um, kind of cut it a little bit, maybe add a little vinegar to make it more of a shrub to kind of restore okay. um, the acidity or the freshness. Um, this is not something I personally tried, so it's, it's speculation, but there may be some chef-grade purees out there that one could tinker with, but I've not personally done that, so mm. I don't know how it works. But let's say something like um, um, Perfect Puree. I've used Perfect Puree and Buron in similar brands with other fruits. And what I've always found is that I just need to kind of cut it a little bit so it's not as sweet. Okay. But so what would be your approach then? What's the ideal approach here with, with Granadine? Is it um, making it yourself or, or is there a high quality provider that you would go for? I would say if you can make it yourself, make it yourself because then mm-hmm. you have more control over how um, sweet you want it to be. But um if I got this right, I think there's a few kind of smaller producers of cocktail syrups that are reputable, like Small Hand Foods mm-hmm. makes some good cocktail syrups. I don't know if they have grenadine currently, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Um, BG Reynolds, which is also based in California, they specialize in tiki and tropical drink applications. Okay. So they're probably your best bet and you know pretty easy to get. I would start there. 
And then again, like if you don't want to order the whole syrup and you just want to, you know, make it yourself, palm juice and white sugar, Mm -hmm. just make it the same way you would a simple syrup. Got it. Um, And ideally you're looking for something therefore that is sweet, but is not overly sweet, has some, has some sharpness to it. Yeah. You want it to be a little tart because that, that kind of, again, like kind of goes with those kind of concentrated fruit flavors that I mentioned in a Guyana Mm -hmm. rum. Wonderful. Um, So do not, everyone listening, A, consider roses, and B, do not undervalue the the importance of grenadine in this. Do not skip this one. You know, I think this is the one where people try to cut corners, but Mm -hmm. you're not doing yourself any favors. I'll put it to you that way. Nice. Top tip there. Next ingredient. Next ingredient. Okay, where are we at? All right, falernum. Let's talk about falernum Let's talk about it, okay, because... I have the falernum that I like to use when I'm behind the bar because it's consistent. It's actually built on a rum base. Mm-hmm. And, and so, can I stop you for a second? Just falernum for anyone listening who's not aware of what it is. Oh, yeah. I'm going to break it down. So oh, falernum, okay, sorry. It's, a, it's, um, it's a Barbadian liqueur, historically, which is based on Bayesian rum infused with cinnamon, clove, um, citrus peels. Every recipe differs somewhat. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a rum liqueur, a rum liqueur. I think it's helpful to compare it, let's say to, um, orange curacao. So orange curacao is in that kind of triple sec or citrus liqueur family. What differentiates is that the orange peels from the island of curacao, um, have a, a little bit more of a, a bitter slash aromatic element to it. Whereas triple sec, they're using different oranges. So I kind of like to think of falernum as like the triple sack of rum, but mm-hmm. but in a good way. Okay. Because it's not based on a neutral spirit. It's actually based on rum. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, more copacetic and it does bring some flavor to the table. Orange curacao can sometimes be based on a neutral spirit. In the better case scenarios, it's based on a brandy. Because brandies are typically a good base for liqueurs. But in the case of falernum, it's rum. It's rum. Yep. And any other um, kind of profiles in there or or brands that you might highlight or, yeah. Yeah, so I, I like John D. Taylor, J.D. Taylor, um, because it is produced in Barbados in the same facility under the supervision of people who've been working with that product for over 100 years. So, you know, there's an unbroken lineage. It's mm-hmm. the real deal. Yeah. Whereas if you, you know, buy for Learn of Serp and say, again, like I'll, I'll bring up B.G. Reynolds, it's fine, but I don't know that they're using a, you know, Bayesian rum as a base. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, well, um, Falernum is from Barbados. Get a Bayesian Falernum. Yeah. Keep it classic there. Um, and what's the so rum liqueur? Just curious, what kind of proof would that come in at? And what are you looking for there? Just uh, maybe that's a signal of quality. Like maybe folks see one, they come across one. What are they supposed to be? Well, I mean, if my memory's correct, I think John D. Taylor is clocking in around 17%. It's certainly not higher than 23 because there is a law in the U.S. regarding um, the proof on something that will be called a liqueur. Liqueur, yeah. Um, but, I mean, if it has no alcoholic content whatsoever, then, you know, what that means is that you're going to be giving up a little real estate in the end result. And so having something that comes in at least 16% and above mm-hmm. means you're not, like, 
getting unwanted dilution. That's mm-hmm. why I prefer a rum-based falernum as opposed to one that doesn't have mm-hmm. a spirit component. Yeah, and I, that that's perfect there. Then it's just like that one thing to look for, and that would be alcohol is a surefire sign of uh, quality, hopefully. Um, I mean, it's one element, but also, again, consider like when you're making a cocktail, you, you want the right amount of dilution. So any component you can put in there that doesn't uh, detract from that mm-hmm. is, is better. Wonderful. So next, let's dive into either absinthe or herb saint. Which are you using and what's this bringing to the, the cocktail? All right. So this is like a matter of taste. I mean, for me, the herb scent, I find it a little sweeter mm-hmm. relative to most absinths, but I, there's so many absinths on the market right now that I can't say you should use this or you should not use that. So I would just say familiarize yourself with the different approaches to it. I think herb scent coming from New Orleans maybe is something that Don may have used because that's where he grew up. So yeah. I think it might have something in common with his palate. Again, speculation. Yep. But um, I, I think the question is like, you know, how do you feel about sweeteners in your cocktails? And if you don't like sweet, then maybe go do the less of that. Route. Go the absent root. And if you don't like a lot of anise flavor, mm-hmm. I would stray away from the herb scent because that is very anise mm-hmm. driven. Some people just can't stand it. Some people like it. So I would say just understand your palate and your preferences and then mm-hmm. decide from there. No right or wrong answer. Perfect. Yeah. Um, and then I believe, if I'm not mistaken here, and I am consulting my notes because there's a lot going on, there's a lot going into this cocktail, I believe we just have maybe uh, another citrus component and bitters. That might be correct. Which do you want to explore first? Okay, citrus, because, again, this is like the make or break. Okay. Whenever I'm working with the bar client and... And I understand, you know, fresh citrus can be expensive. Like of of late, yep. Uh, I know fresh lime has gone from maybe seventy dollars a case to up to a hundred and twenty or a hundred and thirty. Yep. So that's a serious jump. That's a lot. That's crazy, right? So I I feel the pain, but it's like, okay, should we use prepackaged juice or should we use fresh lime? Obviously. Fresh lime is going to give you the better result. Um, you know, one thing when you're working at home to keep in mind is that there are two schools of thought. You know, one says you want to just use it right after you squeeze it. One says that it's better to squeeze the juice and give it a few hours to kind of like let off some some mm-hmm. gases or oxidize a little bit so it becomes a little less acidic and more stable, so to speak. But never keep fresh juice from the day before. Because at that point, it's basically done. Like all the the floral components have um, disintegrated. And so what you're left with is just very bitter. And it's not giving you that fresh freshness that you want. Um, but, you know, if you want to use a prepackaged juice, by all means. But just be aware that it's not, it's not, it's the, not the same. same. It's not interchangeable. It doesn't pop the same way that the, the fresh stuff does. It doesn't. And then finally, bitters. Yeah. So... Um, bitters are essentially salt and pepper in cocktails. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're based on a, um, a higher proof neutral spirit infused with barks and herbs. Angostura is kind of like the, the go-to for most cocktails. And, um, you know, the palate, um, 
you know, we're talking about um, barks, herbs, and spices that come from South America, actually not far from where Damarara rum is produced because the Damarara Valley abuts the Amazon. So, you know, it's kind of like a similar thing. I would suggest um, going, I call the um, what grows together, goes together adage, right? So, yeah, you can use other styles of bitters, but I say Angostura is a good place to start. If you have an opinion regarding like using a Jamaican bitter or a pimento bitter or even tiki bitters, by all means, go with that. But I say start with Angostura. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So I feel like we're now ready to construct this drink. And I would love to hear your method for that and tips along the way, as well as um, the spec that you would use or what you would consider to be the the classic, the, the recognized classic these days. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I'm going to read off the spec that, you know, I used in my book. Yes. Which is basically, you know, a paraphrase of what um, Beach Bum Berry discovered as he decoded the zombie. So I got to mm -hmm. give him credit for that because I couldn't figure this cocktail out on my own. Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so, you know, one dash of Angostura bitters. One teaspoon of falernum. Okay, what teaspoon are we talking about? I would suggest just using like a standard bar spoon. Yeah. Like the kind you can get from Cocktail Kingdom because that's essentially an equivalent to a teaspoon. Um, half an ounce of falernum, half an ounce of Don's mix. So if you're using the ingredients separately, that would be a quarter ounce each of your cinnamon syrup and your grapefruit juice. Then uh, three quarter ounce of the fresh lime juice. That's been sitting for a little bit. At this point, I would stop. Taste it, see if you like the, the sweet and sour balance because citrus varies from day to day. So maybe you might want a little more sweet or a little less sour, depending on where that's at. Mm -hmm. Now, after that, an eighth of a teaspoon of absinthe. Okay, how do you do this? Me personally, I'll just use like a dropper, like maybe one or two. Yeah. That's, that's it. it. Yeah, because after that, it's it's going to be a big affair here. Um, now, the, the next one is... One ounce of 151 Damarara rum. Very important. Um, not 151 Bacardi. Worlds apart. It's not the proof that we're after here. It's the intensity of flavor. And in this case, the flavor of Damarara rum. Perfect. Uh, followed by one and a half ounce of a gold Puerto Rican rum. Okay, so now it's okay to do the Puerto Rican mm -hmm. rum. So, you know, that could be like a, a Bacardi Ocho or something that's similarly styled. It could be Bugal. Um, but by gold, we're talking about a rum that falls somewhere between the five and eight year range. Um, important to note that if you're doing mixed drinks with citrus, I don't recommend using rums that are aged more than eight years because they've taken on so much character from wood that I think they're, they're really better either in the spirit for it application or neat mm -hmm. or on the rocks. So you want rums that are a little lighter so you get like those natural flavors still shining through. Mm -hmm. Then last but not least, my favorite part, uh, the one and a half ounces of Jamaican rum. So um, earlier we talked about how the rum in this original recipe was likely column still. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go to the store and you pick up something that says Jamaica rum, it could be, let's say if you picked up an Appleton, be aware that that's going to have some column distillate in it. And so it's a, a style that differs a little bit from what um, Don was likely working with. If you want something that's closer to what he uh, used, it might be a Smith & Cross. 
It might be something from Ed Hamilton Ministry of Rum, which sources from distillers that work exclusively with pot stills. Mm-hmm. That's where I would tend to go. Just again, a Jamaica rum is not a Jamaica rum. Mm-hmm. There's that old school pot still, and then there's a more modern style that integrates both. But I will say, for some people, they're like, wow, I got to get three bottles of rum. No, you don't, actually. Oh. Exactly. So here's the hack. If you want to get three bottles of rum, because you plan on making tiki and rum drinks anyway, by all means, do that. Um, If you're that person, I would say, when you plan to make zombies, why not just make your own blend ahead of time? So go ahead and measure your rums out in a 500 ml using these proportions so that it's already ready to go. So you just have to do one pour. Yeah. Hey, boom. But if you don't want to do all that, um, Ed Hamilton makes a really delicious zombie rum blend. Wow. That he consulted uh, Beach Bum Berry to make. And it uses, you know, the rums from Jamaica, from Demerara that are producing these methods that are closer to what mm-hmm. was used at the time. Perfect. Yeah. I, I have some at home and it is delightful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. So, I mean, that's a, a, a way to kind of, you know, you know, Don, uh, we hope that that's what he was using, but I, I you know, figure because we're talking about Beach Berry, yeah. it's pretty close. So it's heavily researched, great sourcing, and then you only need to use one bottle. Just the one bottle. This is, this yeah. is the hack for the minimalist here, the person trying to not take up too much space on their bar or have too many bottles at home. If you can get that bottle, get your hands on it. It's delicious. I got to try that. Sounds yeah. wonderful. And so we've brought all these ingredients together. What's happening next? Okay. So if you're at home um, and you're just using, you know, basic equipment, put it all in the tin, add some ice, shake it as hard as you can. I mean, I say do that with any cocktail, but here, because there are numerous elements here, you do need to like put a lot of energy into it to make sure they all come together. So, you know, that's probably going to be 10 to 15 seconds, depending on how strong you are, (laughs) um, what kind of ice you're using. I personally would suggest um, using larger cubes as opposed to smaller cubes because you don't want the dilution to happen too quickly. You really want to have, you know, a really nice chill Mm -hmm. come over that. So you need that that, uh, uh, shaker tin set to be very frosty almost what I call too cold to hold. Right. Um, from there, you, you know, strain it into ideally like a, a tall Collins, like something that can hold, you know, 12 to 14 ounces, over cubed ice again. If you happen to have pebbles, maybe like put a little on the top if you want to kind of make it look more tiki. Mm-hmm. Um, but the garnish is really simple. You know, it's um, mint sprig, maybe a couple maraschino cherries, not the electric red ones, like the nice <laughs> maraschino cherries. And, you know, just bear in mind that this is from an era in tropical drinks where the elaborate garnishes had really yet to take hold. You started to see more of that in the 40s and 50s. Like, they didn't have mugs. Okay. You know, so they had maybe, you know, flowers and mint and, like, more natural applications, but the kind of over-the-top stuff comes a little later on. So, you know, don't feel like, oh, I don't have tiki mugs. I don't mm-hmm. have this. I don't have that. It's fine. You don't need it. Okay. You know, what you really need is just to pay attention to the rums and the ingredients. Because that's, <laughs> that's what you want. Um, now, if you're in a bar setting, let's say you want to make it for a guest. If you have access to a stand mixer, which, again, you probably would just find in a tiki bar. And it's a Hamilton Beach piece of equipment. Really heavy. The fun thing about it is that you can build a couple serves in one tin at a time. It looks like a milkshake machine. Yeah. And then you know, just a little bit of scooped ice because... It's literally going to take 
maybe three to five seconds of a flash blend, boom. Mm -hmm. And then the drink is mixed. And what I love about it, especially from an operator point of view, is that as long as everything's measured properly and you're, you know, everybody's in agreement on the amount of ice that you're going to use in it, it just means like, regardless of your uh, skill level, is, is very democratic. Um, not a shortcut, obviously. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying, yeah. well, give this to your team if they don't know how to shake drinks. Like, that's not <laughs> what I'm trying to say. But in a pinch, yeah. you know, when you're five, six people deep and that ticket has 10 zombies on it. There you go. Let's make it happen. But so you, you mentioned a little bit of ice. Um, can, can we rough quantity there? Like for, for one for one serving. Yeah, was it like half a, a standard bar s- scoop? Scoop. Okay. Yeah. Like half. Yeah. If, if you're doing a flash blend method. Yeah. Yeah, about half a scoop. And that's and that's basically doing the job of, you know, the ice in the shaken form, diluting and chilling at the same time. So obviously the more you add, the more diluted it's gonna become. Exactly. So I mean, bear in mind it's going in a tall glass over ice anyway. So even yeah. if even if it comes out a little strong initially. <laughs> that is fine. Um wonderful. Well, that's been yeah, that's been an incredible deep dive on the zombie the preparation, the serve, everything. I definitely feel now comfortable approaching this one from from a home bartender perspective. Was wondering though if you have any other um, advice or final thoughts regarding this cocktail. Yeah, I would say again, we talked about this. Like, don't skimp on what you may regard as the minor ingredients. Like, don't skimp on the grenadine. If you want to make your falernum at home, that's great. That might be better for you because maybe you're going to pick out a rum that you really resonate with. Like maybe you'll use the Jamaica rum instead. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But, you know, the smaller ingredients do play a role in kind of enhancing and drawing out the flavors in the major players of the rum. And, you know, I would say for each rum that we're talking about, you know, each one has at least like three to four flavor attributes. So when you think about it, there's like somewhere between like eight to 10 flavor attributes that are meant to come through in the, the final result, mm-hmm. you know, so hence all the other supporting players. So I, I just think, you know, don't skimp on mm-hmm. any of it. Don't regard it as extravagant. Just realize that it's a fine tuned machine. It's mm-hmm. going to take you places. <laughs> Have fun with it. And one final question from me, best time and setting to be drinking a zombie. Yes. I'm glad you bring it up. So there's a spot in San Francisco called the Zombie Village. Okay. And um, not only are the drinks fantastic and the build is like so over the top, but what I really loved about it, and, you know, this was um, a a program that uh, was started by Doc Parks, who has recently gone on to start another bar in uh, Napa Valley called Willard's Tiki Lounge. The Zombie Village is an homage not only to that cocktail, but to the history of tiki bars in general. And so, you know, there's like a general bar area, which is beautiful and an upstairs lounge and like little grottos. And the each grotto is, um, you know, a booth that sits maybe eight to 10 people, but it's each dedicated to like a seminal bar or decade in the history of tiki, which I just thought was so brilliant and just like reverential. Yeah. You know, cause some bars are like, they're really about their story and their brand. And yeah. that's fine. But I love that he was sharing the love and also providing this like educational moment for, for those that, that care. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had a 
wonderful and almost scandalous evening there with, with him, <laughs> <laughs> a few tiki friends from California. It, we we coined a phrase, tiki to the face, and I'll just leave it to your imagination what that meant, <laughs> what that looked like. But yeah, no, I love that place. Sounds like an amazing setting for for this cocktail. Um, well, Shannon, thank you so much. That's been a lot of fun. Let's head into the final questions, our recurring questions to finish the show so that our listeners can get to learn a little bit more about yourself. Okay. Okay, let's jump into it. Um, so, question number one. feel like we might know the answer to this one, not sure. What style or category of spirit would typically enjoy the most real estate on your back bar? It's rum. I admit <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean... I would say it's maybe like 80% mm -hmm. of what I keep at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you'd said anything else, I would have been very surprised there. No, I mean, it's for research purposes. <laughs> <laughs> it's work. It's part of my job. Yep. Question number two. What ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Yeah. Um, I think, okay, if you're at home, I think people tend to overlook ice you know, it's like, okay, what what size are the cubes? Because that's mm -hmm. going to contribute to the dilution, both when shaking and also serving. Mm -hmm. Aesthetically, it's nice to have, you know, clear eyes. I'm not saying, yeah. I'm not the person that's like, I don't like crappy eyes. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't want to go that far with it. But it does make a difference. And then also consider, like, how you're storing the ice. Yeah. Like, I don't, I have a, I'm able to store ice in a freezer that doesn't interact with food. Mm -hmm. I know that's not true for everybody but it does make a difference because yeah. the flavors of whatever else is in that space is going to end up being the ice you do not you want know? yeah to I be mean, shaking it with a, a burrito flavored ice <laughs> I mean, maybe we're making a margarita i don't know but you know what i'm saying like so again like something that i think people are just like oh yeah just go grab some from the deli mm. hey sometimes that's fine you're yeah. going to the beach who cares but if you're going to take the time to make a recipe like yeah. this take care of your ice yeah and Stick it in a Ziploc or in a in a plastic container. I've if, done if that too. Yeah, yeah, that helps. Number three, question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received in this industry? Slow down. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that the most important piece of advice is just to realize that it does take some time. Let's say if, if you're working behind a bar and you do aspire to own a program or, you know, achieve some sort of significance or, you know, staying power to realize that maybe contrary to what it may look like on social media, um, you know, it, it takes a decade plus, I think to a get really good at being behind the bar, at being in service, at mastering your craft, at managing yourself, right? And so I, I would just say, don't be in a hurry. Mm -hmm. I think that also just extends to, to everyday life these days. For sure. Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, past or present, what would it be? That's easy. Um, El Florida and Havana. Mm -hmm. I, I see if I can get the little spot next to Hemingway. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I can't, 
believe actually no one's no one's thought to say that one before. That's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, easy for me. Of course <laughs> I want to go there. Yeah. Final question today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Again, very easy. A daiquiri. But, okay, maybe the question is, okay, if I made it, yeah. If I was going somewhere and I didn't know who was making it, (laughs) 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 then maybe a teaponche because Mm -hmm. that's pretty hard to mess up. Right. That's a good one. Yeah. But if you're making it for yourself. Man, now I feel torn. Teaponch with a snackery chaser. (sighs) Boom. Yep. That's one order right there. So you're allowed both of those. So that's what I would do. (laughs) That's a pro move right there. I do my best. Shannon, thank you so much. It's been a blast chatting all things zombie with you and getting into the history. And yeah, just thanks for coming in and thanks for your time. Oh man, a pleasure. I mean, it's fun to talk about this stuff because sometimes I I feel like I kind of take some of these things for granted. And so, you know, it's been great to chat with you and learn about your background and also just share these things with the Mm -hmm. listeners, especially when it comes to like the rum blends, because I think that's something that makes tiki really special makes the rum category really special that you can work with it in this way so that's why i love the zombie because it really makes a strong case for that amazing well let's go make some zombies actually i need to go out and buy a ton of ingredients and then head home and make some zombies sounds like a plan to me <laughs> I, I might be zombie free tonight because i'm on a writing deadline but um Ooh. but you can call me if you need some tips sounds great thank you right on all right thanks Tim. okay That was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>